Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's just after one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. Uh, I'm Dr. Beach. And I'm Kate Mills. How are you? I'm excited to be in the studio with people in the green room and a bit of action. It's fantastic. We have have guests. uh, We have guests, live guests. And Kate, I haven't, you know, sat behind. It's been a long time since we've been. here with you for a very long time. Great to see you barefoot and in board shorts and I kid you not, audience, (laughs) here as always. Yes, I can verify that. Barefoot in board shorts. But that's kind of your, that's your kind of. I'm just lazy when it comes to putting clothes on. <laughs> yeah. Apparently nudity in the studio is only fine after a certain hour. <laughs> Sunday morning's a bit too early for that. And I'm loving that Melbourne's t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a glorious day it is in Melbourne today. We'll get on to Melbourne, not Melvin. Melbourne. But yes, that was a Melvin's Melbourne. t-shirt, not a Melbourne t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. It is a glorious day in Melbourne. It is. Yeah. Stunning. Melbourne at its best. Thank you very much, Tim Thorpe, who was also at his best this morning with Vital Bits and uh, Andrew with Soulful Bits, either with things to do today. Great show, as Great always. Show. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Good old Tim. <laughs> Catch Tim next Saturday and Sunday morning for more Vital Bits to uh, get you going every weekend day, which he does every single weekend. Thank you so much, Tim. All right, on the program today... Something for everyone. We say that a lot, but we're sort of covering quite a few bases today. We're going to be joined shortly in studio by Rex Hunter, our own in-house maritime archaeologist. He'll be talking about the history of diving the ship's graveyard off Port Phillip Heads. Have you either of you been and dived on the ship's graveyard? Yeah, I've I've done a few dives out there. Probably not as many as a lot of other people out there, but um, it's something I'm not that familiar with even as a diver. I think I um, tend to focus on the rocks than... The Rex. The Rex. Yeah. (laughs) No, I've not done it at all. I did it a long, long, long time ago. Um, The 90-foot sub. Yeah, I think that's probably where I ended up too, I think that's that's a good starting point, but we can ask Rex about all of that. He's going to talk about the history of diving and that this coming November marks 50 years since it was first dived by a group called the Geelong Skin Divers. Uh, And uh, if you follow us on our Facebook page, you'll see there's an image that I posted that Rex sent me um, of some of the original divers on uh, on some of the wrecks down at the ship's graveyard. So Rex is going to talk about that and um, some of those vessels and the first divers. Who did that exploration work? Whatever happened to the expression skin divers? We don't use that <laughs> anymore. Rex it really. Did. Yeah, let's, let's, I'm going to go. I want to ask. Let's ask our own Rex that question. Yeah. We're then going to be crossing um, again to speak with Dr. Elodie Campras from Deakin University. We had Elodie on the program last week talking about the spider crabs. We're going to catch up with her pretty much every week from here on if she's available. Um, if you missed the program, she's leading a team doing some research into the migration patterns and this phenomenon that we, you know, very excited about every year it comes around every year mm-hmm. where the spider crabs come to play, although they didn't last year, as we mentioned last mm-hmm. week on the program. So it was a pandemic thing. What you yeah, reckon? The, the no, crabs were aware. <laughs> yeah, they were aware. They, they yeah, had yeah. some spidey yeah. sense, you reckon? Flippant. Yeah. Um, there's been also the deployment of an underwater camera, which is pretty exciting cool. too. So we'll, we'll talk to Elodie about that. Yeah. We are then going to be joined in studio by Katie Griffin. She has come all the way up from Janjark. 
all the way up from Janja to talk to us. Um, to talk about A Cleaner Coast, which is a community-based organisation she helps to run. And they do amazing work keeping uh, the Surf Coast beaches clean. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Katie about this. And they've got a big event happening next Sunday. So we're going to let you know all about that and I, how you can participate. Yeah, they've had an add-on, haven't they, on Triple R? I heard it the other day and they were talking about bands and the clean-up. And I was like, that is awesome. I want to be a part of it. Sponsorship announcement, Kate. It wasn't a sponsorship <laughs> announcement. It was a free. It was a free. It was a community service, was a community service community announcement. Service. Sorry. Nice. So, yes. Yeah, sorry. My corporate lingo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, and then uh, we're going to be going from Janjuk to Townsville, would you believe, to speak with Dr. David Bourne. He's from James Cook University, um, also with the uh, AIMS, the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences. And he's going to be talking about a partnership initiative with Earthwatch Australia. It's basically a citizen science project where they take divers so and also experienced snorkelers, I believe, we'll ask David about that, um, out to do monitoring work. But it's all about um, developing best practice methods for coral recovery. So we all know that obviously the, the Great Barrier Reef is in really big trouble. These guys are actually looking ahead going, right, how can we actually get some best practice methods to help the reef recover? And getting, um, yeah, citizens involved. Yep. Non-professionals, which is always wonderful and it's such a great way of expanding the, the way in which we can accumulate knowledge. And Kate, you know lots about that, don't you, through your yep. programs? But I think it also brings people into the picture. It actually, yeah. they become a spokesperson for the damage that's been done, the work that's been done to restore. And it often means a lot more to people when it comes from someone who is just, you know, someone who's a plumber who then goes and has this experience and then they pass that conversation to all their mates then listening to us. The best part of it about this project is that anyone can take part. If you're a scuba diver, there's a level of qualification you need to have. But if you're looking for a way to escape the Melbourne winter, there are two <laughs> two diving um, trips coming up, one in July and one in October, and you can go up and be part of this. What a great way to escape Melbourne winter. So stay tuned for our last segment when we're talking to um, David, David about that. Yeah. Yep. Who's got weather? Uh, I've got some weather here. It's going to be 21 degrees. It's a beautiful day in Melbourne out there. It's going to be, um, yeah, not much, but then 60% chance of a sprinkle, Bron. Uh, tomorrow, possible shower. It's going to be 17 degrees, so cooling down a little bit towards, the, well, for the rest of the week, actually, 17 and 16 for the rest of the week. Uh, just a little bit of rain, tiny amount, less than one mil or so. Um, and next weekend, it's going to nice and sunny again it's going to be 17 degrees if you're heading out onto the water you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides at point lonsdale which is of course representing the heads of port phillip it's going to be a high tide of about one and a half meters at 11 a.m or just after 11 a.m yep and i just did a quick surf check there's about three foot a swell around at the moment so and a northerly wind swinging around to the northwest so there's plenty of places that you'll be able to get a wave today if you're down that way good stuff all right, we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, Kate, I know there's a big plug that you want to give. I did. So the Disabled Divers Association, um, always busy over summer running snorkels and discover um, that for people living with a disability in and around Ricketts Point mainly. But this winter, we're actually getting they're actually getting together to run Discover Scuba Diving sessions in the pool. So for anyone that's living with a disability, um, you can come along. It's a $50 cost, and that is basically just to book your spot to make sure you turn up. And it's been held at Hyatt, so at the Waves Leisure Centre there in Hyatt. There's a 
huge amount of people that come along to help. Um, if you're interested in either helping or being involved, we're going to put a link up on the webpage. But that's going to be on Sunday, I think it's Sunday the 5th, or it might be Saturday the 5th of June, um, from 2.30 to 5.30. And the plan is to run these monthly. So they actually be offering this monthly for people to get in and basically get a feel for it. And then the idea being, if they enjoy it in a pool in winter, they're going to love it if they can get out in the water over summer. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Facebook page. We don't have a web page. So just for people uh, wanting yes. that information, yep. <laughs> or look up Disabled, Dis- 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 Disabled Divers, Divers Association. Association on Facebook. Yep. And you'll, all the details are there. Waves is a great pool. That's one of my local ones. It is. And, I've uh, been there before yeah, too. Yeah, it's terrific. It's a really good um, good learning environment there Yeah, as well. and it's a fun spot they set up. You know, they've got all um, gloves for hands and various things to help with the flotation and buoyancy and then, you know, get people diving through hoops and doing all sorts of circus tricks underwater. So cool. it's a really fun way to spend some time. So if you want to get involved even as a volunteer, um, yeah, hit up. Hit them up and come along because you have an amazing day there and meet some really sensational people. Yeah, great. Good stuff. Dr. Beach. Uh, turns. We were going to talk about Caspian Turns last time I was on, but ran out of time. So really briefly now, just for a minute or two, Caspian Turns, shorebirds, many people will be aware of turns that we see on our shores. They migrate long distances, as do many birds. Uh, this is a study which is coming out of Sweden from people who have been looking at Caspian Turns migrating from northern Africa. Um where they spend the winter and then they spend the summer up around, you know, Sweden, all those little crinkly bits up around Leningrad, or not Leningrad, listen to me, St. Petersburg, all of those things, all those places up there. Naive birds, young birds, do follow other birds. They get shown the migration route. We still don't understand very much about this at all. In fact, very little do we understand, but we didn't even know what was the gender. Were they, were they mums, dads that were leading the birds? Um, Turns out that now, turns out, <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly the dad. So eight out of eight out of nine birds that they tracked, it was the father. Um, ah. And if the birds got distracted, wasn't they weren't following dad or that single mum, then they got lost and it was all very sad. But but quite interesting data. We know already that there is um, you know. In, in the bird world, the dads spend a lot of time looking after the chicks, for example, in many different species, emus, for example, lots of different birds. Um, and now it appears, at least what, they, what we know with terns, Caspian terns, that it's fathers who are leading the way. Cool. Those scientists have a lot of fun with puns with uh, the use of the, the name tern, wouldn't they? I'm sure they do, yeah. <laughs> All right. That was non-intentional, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I detected that. Coming up to 16 minutes past nine and you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Without further ado, it's time to welcome back into the RRR studios our very own, your ours, Rex Hunter, our maritime archaeologist. Good morning. Good morning. I feel very humble, Bron, with that (laughs) introduction. I hope I live up to it. (laughs) Deserves something a little bit more than, yeah, hi, Rex, how are you doing? Anyway, before we, we go any further, happy... Archaeology Week to all everybody in <laughs> at Triple R. Archaeology uh, Week. National didn't. Archaeology Week. So wow. The yes, whole week. Okay. We knew that, didn't we, Kate? I've, no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> to all those little archaeologists out there in, in Radio Land, happy happy week. Happy arche- what do what do archaeologists do when it's Archaeology Week? Oh, put on a party. Did you see this party hat I'm wearing? <laughs> <laughs> It goes well with the um, skin diving outfit you've got on, Rex. Yeah, so, no, it's just a celebration of um, archaeology, so terrestrial maritime. It's a whole series of events. There's a Facebook page you can go to see what's going on. We're teaching a, a maritime archaeology, introduction to the maritime archaeology course. 
yesterday at the Port Education Centre, so that's uh, under the AIMA banner, so that was one of the things, and there's a whole heap of others, and you know, there's, you can find out how to get a career in archaeology by Googling or, or going to the Facebook page. Fantastic. Let's get into uh, 50 years of diving the ship's graveyard. Well, Sh- Should we start with what the ship's graveyard is? Yeah, ship's graveyard, back in the early 70s, it was like a mysterious, you know, it's a mysterious area. No one, people knew there was shipwrecks out there, but they didn't know where they were. And fishermen, fishermen out of um, Torquay and Barn had started catching crayfish with rusty coloured crayfish. And then they... Um, I said to a couple of divers they knew who um, one was Jeff Naylor, early pioneer diver. He he used to clear you know snag nets and that for him. He said, "Come out, you know, we'll dive it." And this thing's in 45 metres of water, uh, which is pretty deep back in the early 70s. So they set up a training system. You know, got twin scuba tanks and decompression meters. And then finally, in October 1972, went out and dived the first officially dived the ship's graveyard. And what was the first vessel that they found? Was it, I'm guessing, is it the 120-foot sub? No, no, it was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a vessel called the uh, Batman. It was this, oh, okay. a steam hopper barge. Yeah. Because there's twin steam hopper barges, Batman and Faulkner, and it's pretty hard to tell them apart, but uh, they believe they were on, on that, so um, that was one of the early ones. And the reason the ship's graveyard was developed was the... Um, there's a whole heap of old and obsolete vessels in ho- uh, crowding out Hobson's Bay and Melbourne ports. And so they weren't worth the money in scrap cutting them up, so they'd take them out, they decided to just take them out off port heads and scuttle them. And up until 1926, goodness knows where they were scuttled, they'd just take them out and just dump it anywhere. And it was under jurisdiction of the ports and harbours, so the ports and harbours, in one of the reports in 1926, said... We don't know where half these vessels or where any of these vessels have been scuttled. So we, we're going to come up with a plan. You know, you'll, you'll be designated. them. You're going to be designated a spot to dump, to scuttle your vessel, and you have to record it, replace it. And then, in 1932, there was a, a, a national federal act passed for the fisheries and, and um, through the fisheries, designating dumping areas, ships graveyards. So you know, all. All the states and territories got their own ships' graveyards, and so that's how, how we ended up with the one designated one off Torquay. But the original ones, they'd just take tow off Port Phillip heads, and then just get off the leads. And the leads are, you know, the two two main lighthouses. You line up to go in and out of Port Phillip heads, so they just go off the leads and just blow, you know, blow a big hole in the bottom of these vessels, and they'd sink in. Goodness knows where. So you were saying that there are ships' graveyards in every state around Australia. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. one in each one. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Each state and territory have their own specific specific position, position for scuttling vessels. So potentially a fish yeah, hazard for towing nets or even submarines. If you were, you know, plowing along your submarine and bang, there's a, a shipwreck in front of you. So they all in about sort of 45 metres plus depth? Well... The shallowest is the 26 metres or 90-foot sub, which is in 26 metres. And um, the f- deepest are out, out and over 60 metres of water. You know, like the High G is out and over 60 metres and the Brunette and the Don Diego, Don Diego there, you know, approaching 70. Mm. And the last vessel scuttled 
but not a actually in the ship's grave was a um, Navy patrol class vessel called the Bayonet, and that was taken about 10 miles south of uh, Cape Shank and scuttled, scuttled there in just as recently, recently as uh, 1999. So it's only you know, for us. Us <laughs> older people, that was just got pairs of socks older than that. So you, you said before off Torquay. Yeah. Um, when you say off Torquay, how, like, is it off the back of the surf beach at Torquay or is it more down towards, like, Brimley, Ocean Grove, Barwon Headsway? And then how far offshore? Like, we've got the depth, but I'm just imagining if someone's standing on shore just to try and imagine where this graveyard oh. is, like, how far offshore is it? Oh, and what exactly, where is this area exactly? Like, what are the. It's sort of. Picks up the edge of Barwon Heads as well. It's sort of south, south, sort of south westerly of Barwon, about five miles offshore. Really. Yeah, okay. Five nautical miles. So okay, so it's a fair way offshore. Yeah, it's a fair way yeah. offshore, so yeah. it's going to be had to be out in deep water and it was in a specific area to to contain the potential hazard it would form. How many vessels are there down there? Well, officially recorded in the the records are thirty seven. Okay. But wow, doing the research with come up with another, you know, another 10, ah. 10 or so shipwrecks. And they weren't just scuttled off off um, in those areas. Even uh, there was two vessels called, one was two wooden vessels, one was the Palace and one was the Birchgrove, and they were actually set, of, set on fire and let it, let drift ashore at the Nobbies at Phillip Island. Oh, right. So <laughs> that was its latest, not 1932 or something. So they got into all sorts of tr trouble because they you can't just wreck, wreck a vessel because... Suddenly, you've got wood and stuff drifting all, all through the channels. So it's a real hazard, and they just this, this uh, company just decided to get rid of the vessels by setting them on fire and letting them drift ashore at the nobbies. <laughs> so. Now we mentioned it's fifty years since the first. Uh, well, we use the term skin diver because yeah. that was the term that you gave me. We're talking yeah. scuba divers, yes. right? Because yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so fifty years since people first went and dived on. The, these vessels is it recreationally or just at all? Yeah, recre yeah, recreationally. Uh, okay, because um, I said though, past are used by day, stripped of all valuable materials, copper, brass, and just basic hulks taken out there and scuttled. So we've got Jim Anderson, and um, I know Jimmy really well, and he still dives. So Jim, I think Jim's planning to do a, a fifty-year anniversary dive. So let's as fit as a fiddle. Let's line this up. Closer to November because November is the actual kind of fifty-year mark, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah. the actual time. Yeah, yeah but yeah. we'll get Jim to come in or be on the phone or whatever works to to talk to him about this because I'd love to talk about that very first time that yeah, they went down there and a, what they saw. Yeah, it would have been such a buzz, you know, because you get down there and discovering all these shipwrecks, and they discovered the wreck called the Malora, and that was you know a hundred meters long, a three thousand ton vessel just sitting virtually intact in the early 70s because it had only been down for 40 years then. Yeah, amazing. So, and these things basically form artificial reefs, don't they? They're re re very important, you know, as fish habitat. Exactly. Ecologically, they yeah. take on a whole new importance. And provided you get rid of all the oils and toxic yeah, substances, they're, they're a real asset to the seabed. Yeah, brilliant. Anything else you want to talk about with the well, ship's graveyard? A ship's gra oh, it's great. It's great fun, you know, great... Because you've got such a variety of vessels to dive. You've got the J-class submarines, and they're, they're world-class dives. You've got people coming from all over Australia and the world all to dive these sites because I mean, where else can you dive a World War One submarine? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the 90-foot sub before when I was doing a ton of diving. You're going out diving every single weekend a long time ago. 
there was, there's almost a bingo card of dive sites around Port Phillip Bay that you need to dive and the 90-foot sub is one of them. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really good fun. Yeah. We actually found the uh, J1 in about nearly 40 years ago and we went out, we had um, got a set of marks from a, a fisherman because they'd only recently been found. We got one set of marks from one fisherman and we got another set of marks from the other one. So we combined these two sets of marks and the marks that what we call transit, so you've got a, a shed and maybe a pine tree and you line them up you head off and when they you got two and when they eventually line up x marks the spot maybe you go and we yeah. so we use these two combined subs uh, marks to find the uh j j1 brilliant when we were looking for the uh 90 foot sub <laughs> <laughs> that was great thanks yeah, rex no problems problem. good uh, to see you yeah good to see you too and uh, let's let's have a, a real celebration of this um in november when it actually we clock over that ex- that 50 years that sort of significant time and yeah yeah well, i'll get, get my people to talk to your people let's do that <laughs> and then we'll do lunch okay. <laughs> thanks rex okay thanks Catch you in Bye. a few weeks Bye. where are the giant spider crabs uh, and to uh, help us answer that question we're now crossing to speak with dr elodie campras from deakin university good morning elodie Good morning. Thank you for having me again. Hey, I think you're actually the only person associated with this program who's ever had their own theme song. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> oh, you got in touch with me earlier this week because you've put out some time-lapse cameras. Um, you know, I'm sure people are familiar with these happening out in you know terrestrial landscapes, but how does this work underwater, Elodie? Yeah, so um, we have deployed those time-lapse cameras on the Lagari Pier and Rai Pier because it's obviously the sites where we think spider crabs might show up and aggregate. Um, so, yeah, the cameras are waterproof in, in housing and they are secured around the pylons and the cameras will take photos at regular interval every five minutes during daylight hours. And, uh, yeah, with this work, so we're hoping not only to um, catch the spider crabs if they're around, but also have an idea of the, the predators that might be around at that time. So the photos will be um, uploaded onto a web portal and then, um, yeah, citizen science from um, locally or internationally even can help us analyse the images and count spider crabs and predators. Now, one thing I think probably a lot of people will be thinking at this point in time is the potential risk of having, you know, the the declaring of the arrival of these spider crabs after what we saw not so much last year um, or really the year before, but with, uh, you know, large numbers of people heading down there and wanting to catch them. Um, is this something that's been factored in to having these cameras deployed, Elodie? Yes, of course. Um, so the images won't anyway be made public until after the aggregations, like well after the aggregations. So, um, yeah. And, and again, with the, the Spider Crab Watch project, if people want to report sightings of current aggregations, we encourage them to uh, change the geo-privacy setting and put that to private so the information won't be made public. Yeah, fantastic. Really good to hear. Yeah. Just thought I'd ask that question, just to put people's minds at ease. Um, so have we got, you know, 30 seconds or so for a report on what's happening? Have we kind of seen any more sightings in the last week? 
Um, yes, but uh, at the moment they're not really at the piers. They're sort of in around Legoro Marina, but in deeper water, and um, they can only be accessed by boats, but they're still to be uh, on the move still. Okay, so there's a few out there, but uh, obviously we're going to keep those locations secret. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Elodie. Really great to catch up with you, and um, hopefully can we catch up with you again next week for a, or, you know, the week after, but for a fairly steady report on what's happening with our spider crabs. Yeah, sure. And can I just ask if anyone sees uh, a problem with any of the cameras, condensation or water, they can get in touch with me. So on the Spider Crab Project on iNaturalist, my contact details are in the About section. Fantastic. I think we've already put links to iNaturalist on our Facebook page. So if people are, you know, do spot something and, and are concerned, yep, go to our Facebook page and you can get all those details straight to Elodie from there. Thanks, Elodie. Great to speak with you again and we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you. Sounds great. Okay. Bye for now. Cheers. Bye. Dr. Elodie Campress. Great stuff. It sure is, yeah, having the, the cameras deployed and, um, yeah. Got to keep that location a little bit secret. Yeah, we do. <laughs> no, it's all very secret squirrel, isn't it? Yeah. We're yeah. all just looking after the crabs at the end of the day. All right, 9.32 on that good note. sentence. <laughs> now, a cleaner coast is a surf coast-based community organisation and like so many of our great grassroots groups, they do incredible work to keep our glorious beaches on the surf coast clean. Next Saturday, 22nd of May, good people from a cleaner coast are partnering with Surf Rider Foundation to tackle cleaning up not only one or two but three Surf Coast Beach locations, Janjuk, Torquay and Bells Beach, with each event ending in a truly fun time afterwards. To tell us all about A Cleaner Coast and give us details on next week and how you can get involved, it's a great pleasure to welcome all the way up from the Surf Coast, Katie Griffin. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming. We've had so few guests in studio, but uh, I can't remember the last time we had someone who travelled all the way up from somewhere like Jan Jux, so thanks for coming. No worries. It's not that far. (laughs) It's exciting for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting to be here. New studios as well, Let's start with the Cleaner Coast. Um, tell us about your amazing organisation and what you and your your people do. Um, well, a Cleaner Coast started in 2019, and like all good ideas, it was started at the pub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, 2019. There was a few of us got together. We just wanted to um, create something where we could help clean up the coast but also celebrate the community that we live in because we actually have such a great spirit down there and we live on one of the best coastlines in the entire world in my opinion so um, we did an event and we had the same thing three cleanup locations and an after party afterwards with live music and a barbecue and it was just so much fun so we've kind of used that as a blueprint for the last few years and um, this weekend or next weekend will be the same so I reckon if you ask people to describe those three beaches that you're talking about, so mm. I'll say them again, Janjuk, Torquay, Bells Beach, they probably say they all, they're already pristine. So this is the fact that you're organising big cleanups and you've done it before suggests this isn't the case. Yeah, well, on the surface they do look pretty clean, like the sand and everything does look pretty clean. But, um, you know, if you take a moment and just sit on the sand and start digging in a bit, there is like quite a bit of microplastics in the sand. We also try and focus in the car parks as well. Often, um, you know, if you're going for a surf, you're super excited, open up your door and sometimes stuff will blow out. Yeah. I like to think um, that people aren't throwing rubbish out 
on purpose um, and it is happening accidentally. So, um, yeah, there is a bit in the car parks and the tracks and even just um, like in Janjuk, just to kind of around the shops there. Um, yeah, so we kind of focus on the sand but also in the car parks and around the beaches too. You're absolutely right on the sand. You can look at a beach. I was in New South Wales, lucky enough to be staying near Bondi, and it was a beautiful morning. The beach looked fantastic. And I just looked around me, and without moving from my town, mm. in the space of 10 minutes, by looking carefully, I accumulated an enormous amount of plastic. And you can't see that at a distance. And mm. it's really, yeah, as we were talking about this before, but this is all the stuff that ends up in the guts of shearwaters, birds, it's, you know, that they eat it, it looks fantastic. Mm. They get no nutrition. No. Bad for them, kills yeah. them. Mm. Yeah, so that's what we'll be focusing on. Yeah. Has it been a bit of an eye-opener for a few of the residents? Because um, I imagine, like we've been saying, the beaches look so good on the surface and most residents probably think that, but once they actually get involved in something like this, they're starting to see things that they've probably never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Because um, we're really proud of those beaches down there. Like We all appreciate and love those beaches down there. You know, we surf, we walk, or you know, we interact with that environment and appreciate that environment so much. But then, yeah, on once you go a little bit deeper you know we're getting like nearly 100 kilos of rubbish at these wow. cleanups wow yeah, like we're filling up ute loads and what sort of stuff are you collecting so you oh. mentioned microplastics but yeah oh we um get a whole heap of stuff we've got a collection of coke cans one from every decade going back to the 70s uh, we've found wallets that have licenses expired in 1975. Oh, There's, my God. <laughs> we've found, um, like, suitcases filled with clothes and trolleys and couches and just, yeah, beer bottles and heaps of stuff, yeah. And with the plastics, you're, you're saying microplastics, but actually a lot of it is sort of almost macro, it is macroplastic mm. stuff, the, you know, the size of your thumbnail. Yeah. And I noticed in, in New South Wales, and I'm sure it's here as well, I've seen it down St Kilda everywhere, that when you really look, it's one of the, the big offenders of those nasty little soy sauce fish oh. containers. It's those red caps just from get those. Get rid of them. <laughs> oh, why can't we just ban those entirely? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So get it, get it's, on, Dr. Beach. It's these repeat <laughs> offenders. I'm, I'm with you there. I, I had that thought, yeah. you got some time now, Dr. Beach. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we had an artist on the program years ago who made a, a statement by creating this incredible sculpture, like huge life-size sculpture of a giant... Um, yellowfin tuna and it was made entirely out of those little soy sauce fish containers yeah, mm. yeah. and um, and they were just ones that she'd collected and she was getting people to send them to her and they were all none of them had been purchased for that purpose they were all discarded mm. yeah Amazing. it's a little bit melancholic isn't it yeah it sure is and then, and then the, the containers themselves which are transparent you know that you just can't see those when yeah. you're sifting they look like so there's all we're seeing is the colored stuff yeah absolutely do you find that sometimes are worse than others? So I'm thinking particularly we've just sort of come out of the Bells Classic. Um, do you find that there's, you know, that big pulse of people coming down to the surf coast brings rubbish with it, even if it's unintended? And then when, when all the people leave that there's just a bit more stuff lying around? Yeah, look, the the Compet Bells, they do a really great job at making sure the environment there is protected and they work with the um, Wadawurrung traditional owners as well to make sure that everything there is protected. So they do a really good job at protecting the beach. Um, but, yeah, definitely over summer, um, you know, the beaches along the foreshore get full and, you know, people are still trying to stuff their coffee cups in there and they're just overflowing. So there is a bit of that. Um and there's now no really quiet time down mm. there either. It is just busy a lot of the time. And, um, yeah, so you just – with people moving around, yeah, you just do get a bit of extra rubbish there, unfortunately. 
let's go to next week's event. Mm. You're partnering with Surfriders? Yes. So yes. Surfrider Foundation, Surf Coast Branch. Yeah, absolutely. And so what, what's happening next weekend? Okay. So we're going to do the, yeah, the three cleanups. We're going to do one at Bells Beach and Winky Pop, one in Jan Jack around the shops and the foreshore there. And then Surfrider are going to run the one in Torquay North, which is at um, the stormwater drains in, in Torquay North. And that's upstream from the Carafe wetlands uh, in Brimley, which is a really important habitat for lots of like migratory birds that are coming in from the Northern Hemisphere and um, especially there's like um, critically endangered species there like the orange-bellied parrot um, and Surfrider really pushing to get that those carafe wetlands incorporated in the Ramsar um, protection. Um, so there's actually a community survey going out and there's a link to that on our Instagram. So we're trying to get that area protected um, but we'll focus on the drains there and try and get all the rubbish before it flows down into the wetlands. So the three cleanups will happen at 10 o'clock and then afterwards we all gather at Bells Beach Brewing in Torquay, a local brewery, and we'll have live music, there'll be beers, we'll have um, Xavier from Wildlife Exposure there with like snakes and birds and oh, lizards cool. <laughs> and all kinds of creepy crawlies that we're trying to protect. I kind of stay away from the snakes, they, <laughs> they're on the other side. Um, yeah, and we just have a bit of a celebration afterwards just to kind of, you know, self-congratulate us and we've got prizes as well. So we've got prizes for the most rubbish collected, we've got prizes for the most face masks collected and then my favourite prize for the weirdest piece of rubbish collected. Yeah. Hopefully some more wallets with expired licences yeah. from the 1970s. Yeah, maybe a bit of cash in there would be yeah. It'd be all paper notes though, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. It's still legal tender. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, we've already put links to that on our Facebook page. So yep. if you go to the Marinara Facebook page and the, or the information about today's program, there's, um, there's a, the, a very obvious uh, picture which you can follow through and then that takes you straight through um, to, to your Facebook page. Oh, as well. Great. So 3228 Beach Cleanup and After Party next yep. Sunday, May 22nd. And can anyone go? Anyone can go. Um, the Janjuk and Bells uh, locations are fully accessible. Um, so those two locations, yep, anyone can go, all ages, all abilities. Um, yeah, so we're super excited. We can't wait. No bookings necessary, presumably? Uh, well, there are tickets available online, so you can get – there are tickets that are um, free. Um, yeah. We just keep track of kind of who's coming. There are tickets that are $5 that you get a free beer or tickets that are 15 you get free beer, free food and entry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Good to know. How much fun is that going to be? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Katie, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks it's for having me. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Good luck next week. Yeah, And uh, we'll keep in touch with you because I want to find out how it went and, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, and can continue some conversations about Clean Coast. Oh, absolutely. Brilliant. <laughs> thanks so much. No worries. Been speaking with Katie Griffin from A Cleaner Coast. Now, it's safe to say these days it's general knowledge that coral reefs along our Great Barrier Reef are facing many threats, including warmer waters, ocean acidification, storm damage and agricultural runoff. It's going to take a massive effort to properly understand these current and future threats and Similarly, it's going to take an all-hands-on-deck approach to work out what's needed for coral reef recovery. Part of this effort's happening right now. It's a partnership initiative between James Cook University and Earthwatch Australia. They've joined forces to conduct a series of citizen science-based dive trips to Magnetic Island. And if you're a diver, yes, you, you might be able to join the scientists of James Cook University in their efforts to develop best practice methods for coral reef recovery. To tell us all about this great initiative, it's with great pleasure now we cross to town to speak with Dr. David Bourne from James Cook University. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us here on, uh, yes, on, no, no on Triple R. Now, um, 
to understand what this is all about, can we start with James Cook Uni and particularly you and your work? Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing in researching the corals of the Great Barrier Reef? Yes, as introduced, coral reefs are under pressure and there's a wide range of pressures that occur for coral reefs. And one of them, especially on inshore reefs, is as they degrade, we get more algal growth. And what I mean by algal growth is macroalgae, so these large fronds of macroalgae. And there's always a competitive interaction between corals and macroalgae. And often it's in balance, but when you disturb that balance, you actually get one dominating over the other. And so for some inshore reefs on the Great Barrier Reef, what we see is more macroalgae and unfortunately coral decline over time. Uh, David, it's Dr Beach here. Why, why do the macroalgae take over? Why do they dominate in a, in, a, um, in, a, in a coral reef system that's been stressed? So generally there's a number of pressures that, that happen on reefs and um, especially for some of the inshore reefs we get lots of coastal development. So things where you get um, agricultural runoff, so eutrophication, so more nutrients in the water, that can help the algae grow and can help compete corals. And also we get a lot of sedimentation issues. So through the coastal development, through dredging activities, for example, port expansions, you can get a lot of sediment comes onto the reefs. And that also impacts corals and can just save a macroalgae. So you get that, that advantage where the macroalgae can just grow better and over time they just start to dominate and reduce the amount of coral cover that you get. And they, of course, compete for the light with the, um, you know, the photosynthetic organisms that we find in the coral. So I guess that's one of the effectors, one of the things that sort of drives the coral to a, a more unhealthy state once the, once the algae get going. Yeah, especially so these macroalgae can grow quite tall and so they kind of shade out um, and take away a lot of the light. So yes, the corals really struggle. And it's not to say that corals can't compete. Some corals are very good at at actually occurring and living underneath shaded canopies and um, they do quite well, but often you lose a lot of structural complexity. What I mean by that is you lose a lot of the really diverse communities and become a lot less diverse and hence a little bit more degraded. What kind of flow-on effect does that then have to the rest of the coral reef ecosystem, David? So as you lose a lot of that diversity, you can obviously lose a lot of other things. So the reef is really the building block for all the other animals. So it provides the houses or the little nooks and crannies where little invertebrates live, little of these all um, crazy animals that you get on the reef. And so as you lose the corals, you lose the home for a lot of other species. And also fish re- rely on corals a lot. And you can actually get a change in in the sorts of fish that you get on reefs and that has flow-on effects for other other organisms. I mentioned at the start of the program that um, one of the great things about this work that you're doing with Earthwatch, and we have to give a, a shout-out to Earthwatch as well, um, this partnership work that you're doing is that you're kind of looking to the future, aren't you, in terms of thinking about best practice for coral reef recovery? Yeah, so we have a small project going on where we actually remove algae from the reef and so it's looking at the ways that we can actually try and help the reef and by removing algae, essentially it's like weeding um, just underwater and so we take out the algae and we actually do that fine scale process of understanding does the coral come back, does the reef look healthier, does it have higher resilience and we do that through using some of the Earthwatch volunteers so they come on our trips and they help us do that underwater weeding essentially. Big shout out to Tanea Joshi who first alerted us um, to this research and the collaboration uh, that's going on. Um, I think 
I just wanted to talk a little bit about that in terms of recovery because this this stuff is really critical. There's so much in the mainstream press about how much the Great Barrier Reef is in trouble, um, you know, rising sea temperatures and runoff and all those threats we talked about before. But in terms of recovery, this information is critical, isn't it? Because without that information, we can't start planning ahead and um, governments need to go through their budgeting processes to know how much money they need to allocate for things like this. But before you go to that, you actually need to have that information first, don't you? Exactly, yeah. So there's a lot of interest and a lot of work being done in that reef recovery, reef restoration field at the moment. And a lot of, a lot of government money's come in to try and find a toolbox that you can use um, to see if we can help the reef. And so we're at the stage now where you're doing that basic research to see what approaches work and what approaches don't. And our partnership with Earthwatch has been great because we've been in for a number of years now, so like this is four or five years we've been going on with this project. So we have actually a very good picture of how just a simple thing like removing the algae can actually help in that small localised scale effects and actually improves reefs because we get more benthic surface for corals to actually recover. So less algae means more corals. That's fantastic. So you're getting really robust data out of the out of the um, the project already, and you can use that to demonstrate that yeah, this is working. Yeah, at a at a, at that small scale for sure. Yeah. So this is five years already that we've been going, and every year we go out and three to four times a year we're removing that algae from the system, and over time it's actually had quite a beneficial effect, and we we do see from the early results that we do have more coral present on the on the reef itself. Let's move on to talking about the upcoming research trip to Magnetic Island. Um, there was one booked in April, I understand, uh, that the weather kind of wiped that one out. So um, maybe for listeners uh, who aren't familiar with Magnetic Island, can you tell us a little bit, a bit about the trip coming up in July and where Magnetic Island is? Yes, so Magnetic Island, I mean, it's a tropical paradise to some extent. It's just off the coast from Townsville, so it's not far from... It's about a 20-minute um, ferry ride across from Townsville itself. Uh, it has fringing reefs, so all around the island it's got these fringing reefs. It can be subjected to a little bit of poor water quality in terms of when the weather's bad, and that's what happened in our um, April trip. I guess all the Queensland's been hit by a pretty large rain and weather event over the last month, and we were part of that, so... Our our last Earthwatch trip unfortunately got blown out. It was just really high winds and rain. But our next trip is due for July, and so we're going to have back-to-back research trips, actually, where we're inviting um, volunteers to come on and help us remove the algae. So we just need hands. Having more people in the water helps a lot because then we can actually cover more area and remove more algae um, and just lighten the load, essentially, in terms of distribute the workload. And so, yes, we'll be based at Magnetic Island in, in those later ones as well. So details for people who are listening who might want to go. Um, I did mention at the start of the program, David, that it's a great way to escape Melbourne winter. I've, um, I've done my share of diving up uh, in far north Queensland um, in July and I can't recommend it highly enough, especially to get away from, from the Melbourne chill. Um, what should people do if they're interested and what kind of base level qualifications do you need from them? So we, we actually offer um, both snorkeling and diving experiences. So for divers, you have to be relatively experienced because, um, because it's a work operation. Essentially, we're working underwater to do the algal removal, do the weeding. You need a high level of um, or quite experienced diving qualifications, and that includes a rescue qualification. But we also take snorkelers, so anybody that is comfortable in the water and wants to come and help, um, the sites are relatively shallow. Um, being around Magnetic Island, we stay on the we stay on the island itself, 
and we can go from the beach and the boat that we use. And so we need snorkelers as well. So both qualifications. Anybody interested in getting in the water, helping, trying to make a difference to help the Great Barrier Reef, we would welcome them along. And the dates I have here, 18 to 22 July, and uh, you're saying there's going to be one after that as well? Early October, so oh, early the 4th October. to the 8th of October as well. And that, that lines up with before coral spawning. So one of the activities we actually do is remove algae just before coral spawning, so where they release all their eggs and sperm into the water for that mass reproductive event. And so if we clear the reef before the spawning, there's more um, space for the little coral babies to find a place to live and settle on the bottom of the reef. Fantastic. So those details, we've put all of those already on our Facebook page. If you go to the details about today's program and uh, there's a very obvious picture which you can click on and then follow the link through there and it'll take you through to where you can get more information and uh, yeah really interested to catch up with you again David to to see how this travels and uh, because it's such fantastic and very fascinating research and so important too so um, thank you so much for today and hope to catch up with you again Excellent. No, and I'd just like to highlight, you can also go to earthwatch.org.au as well for more information. Yeah, fantastic. That's the link we've got on our Facebook page, but people can go directly there as well. Thanks, David. We'll catch up with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye for now. Dr. David Bye-bye. Bourne there from uh, James Cook University. Amazing stuff. Oh, yeah, wonderful. So exciting. It'd be very nice to go up there. That brings us to the end of our program. Dr. David Bourne, thank you so much from James Cook University. Katie Griffin from Aklina Beach down in Janjuk. Elodie Campras from Deakin University. And Rex Hunt. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.